kind of good to be back in the saddle again. Thank you, uh, three guys who filled in for me while I was gone and, and uh, I was taking kind of a break. But we're going to jump back in today. We're in Torah portion Balak. And it's found in the book of Numbers. But before we jump into the book of Numbers, let's first go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's very important in terms of understanding what's going on in the book of Numbers and how it's applicable today. Because many times we look at the book of Numbers as like a botany textbook and we're like, oh man, this is super dry, this is kind of lame, unless you're a, a nerd like uh, myself or Stacy or Karen or Adrian. You, just, you love botany textbooks. But the book of Numbers is not meant to be that way. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 proves it to us. He says, for brothers, I don't want you to, be, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they were all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they ate the same food from the Spirit. They all drank the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a Spirit-sent rock, which followed them. That was what Bobby was saying yes, uh, last week, right? And that rock was the Messiah. Yet the majority of them, God was not pleased. So their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now these things took place. Why? As a prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As scripture puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. And let us not put them aside to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. So these things happened, Paul's talking about, the things in the the wilderness, they happened and they were written down as a what? Warning to us who are living in the last days, the Akarit HaYamin. Therefore, if anyone, let anyone who thinks he is standing up, be careful not to fall. So why does Paul say these things were written down? What profit do they have? What? To warn us. So we can learn, right, from, from the mistakes of the past, the mistakes of our ancestors. It's very important. And so what happened in Israel, to Israel in the wilderness serves for us as a warning and example as to what can happen to a people learning to become entirely reliant upon their creator. It's what Paul is saying in summary, right? What about 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 12? And this is important because it's going to tell us a little bit about this main character in this week's Torah portion. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 12. However, Paul says, keep on eagerly seeking the things of the Spirit and especially seek to be able to prophesy. For someone speaking in a tongue is not speaking to people but to God because no one can understand since he's uttering mysteries in the power of the Spirit. But someone who is prophesying is speaking to the people, edifying, encouraging, and comforting them. A person speaking in a tongue does not edify himself. Uh, I'm sorry, does edify himself. But a person prophesying edifies the entire congregation. I wish that, I wish you would all speak in tongues. But even more, I wish you would all prophesy. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues. Unless someone gives an interpretation so that the congregation can be edified. Brothers, verse 6 says, suppose I come to you now speaking in tongues. How can I be of any benefit to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even with lifeless musical instruments such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone recognize the melody if, not, if one note cannot be distinguished from another? 
And if the bugle gives an unclear sound, who will get ready for battle? It's the same with you. How will anyone know what you are saying unless you use your tongue to produce intelligible speech? You will be talking to the air. There are undoubtedly all kinds of sounds in the world and none is altogether meaningless. But if I don't know what a person's sounds mean, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. Likewise with you, since you eagerly seek the things of the spirit, seek especially that which will help in edifying the congregation. Therefore, someone who speaks a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit does pray, but my mind is unproductive. So what is Paul saying you should seek out more than anything else? Yeah, so in, in Paul's understanding, and hopefully ours, what is greater, speaking in tongues or the gift of the ability to prophesy? Prophecy, yeah. Now, guys, this isn't your understanding of prophecy like telling the future and fortune telling. It's not, that's not that. It's, it's more speaking words of exhortation or encouragement to the local body, okay? Some of you may have prayed for and received that gift of prophecy. And so that's, in Paul's understanding, that's the greatest of the gifts, is to be able to speak and encourage and exhort, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Convict the local assembly, is, is that gift of prophecy. Now the main character in today's story, guess what? What gift does he have? He has a gift of prophecy. Interesting, right? So we're starting this week's Torah portion, Balak 5781, and I entitled this, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them, because we're going to see this interesting thing that happens with, with uh, Bilam. Now, this week's Torah portion is entitled Balak, but who's the main character of it? Yeah, this guy named Balaam. Now, his name in Hebrew is actually Bilam. Bilam. So I'll, you'll see me, I'll go interchangeably, I'll go Balaam or Bilam. Probably use Bilam, but let's go on. A little Parsha quiz I have for you guys. I know you love these. You wait for them every week, right? Um, how many altars did Bilam build in all? Does anybody remember? Seven. Seven. I heard somebody say it. Good. What is the meaning of Bilam's name? I know. Not a people or not of the people, which we'll talk about later. Number three, true or false? Bilam repeatedly uses the four letter, the holy name of God. True or false? Anybody? I hear false. True. He uses it repeatedly. He has a very intimate knowledge with the name of God. Number four, how many oracles? In Hebrew, it's actually a mashal. It's where we get the book of Proverbs, Mishle. He actually uses these proverbs, these divinely inspired gifts of prophecy. How many of them does he say over the people of Israel? Right now? No. Four. Good job. Four. Number five. Are the people even aware of what's going on? No, they're not. They have no idea that any of this has happened. So the fact that this is in the book of Numbers means that Bilam came back and was like, hey, by the way, you guys didn't realize that I was up on that mountainside and I was doing all this stuff. And so he recounts all this to Moses. Isn't that interesting? Number six. Through what methods is Balaam tempted by this king, Balak? Money. Money. And there's one more. Prestige. Prestige. Okay? Now, you guys hear me talk about, on a regular basis, the three Gs. 
the three things that have the potential to bring down any man of God. What are they? Gold, girls, and glory. And Balak knows that soft spot, doesn't he? Satan knows that soft spot. Yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, did I answer it? Uh, I think it's seven. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Yep, you might be right. Yeah. So, let me clear this up real quick too. How you know the difference between Balaam and Balak? Because I always get, I used to get the two confused a lot. Because they're very similar names, right? Well, notice one has a K at the end. What letter does King start with? K. So that's how I just over time I'm like, okay, Balak ends with a K, has a K in it, that's the king. Okay? I don't know if that helps you. Help me significantly. So Bilam in his name, the rabbis playing on the name Bilam, they call him Beloam, which could mean without a people. That is without a share or with the people in the world to come. Meaning like he doesn't have a future. Beloam. He doesn't have a place in the world to come. They could also play around with his name and you could translate it as Bilaam, which means one that ruined a people. Isn't that interesting? Because you got to remember in a, in a Torah, there's no vowels. It's all consonants. So you could read these into his name just as easily as Bilaam. But tradition holds that in the process of killing Balaam, all four legal methods of execution, stoning, burning, decapitating, and strangling were employed. Yikes. He met his death at the age of 33 and it is stated that he had no portion in the world to come. Sheesh. It's intense. So the legacy of Balaam. Philo, you guys maybe have heard of him. He's a Jewish historian. He says that he, he calls him a man of renown above all men for his skill as a diviner and as a prophet who foretold the various nations important events, abundance and rain, or droughts and famine, inundations and pestilence. And Josephus even calls him the greatest of all the prophets of that time. Wow. He had quite the gift, didn't he? So before we read a little bit of this week's Torah portion, I want to go over three words. These three words are kalal, arar, and kava. These are three very different words. For instance, kalal means to make slight, to make less than deserved by, or divinely intended by the object or person, okay? So it's like something deserves honor, and you just kind of like, ah, whatever. You know, it'd be like if a president walked into the room and we're just like, ah, whatever, we don't really care. But if a president walks in the room, you show him honor, right? Now the next word, arar, it means to bind, to hem in with obstacles and to render powerless. The third word, kava, means the act of uttering a formula designed to undo its, uh, its object or person, okay? Now, in your Bibles, in the English translation, these three words get translated, unfortunately, as one word. Very different concepts, very different ideas, but the English translators typically translate them as one word. What is that one word, do you think? To curse. To curse. So what if we do this? What if we read a little bit of the Torah portion, and I show you where these three words are used? It's kind of interesting. You want to do it? Let's kind of weave them in there. So turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Bamidbar 22. Bamidbar 22. We're going to start in verse 2. This is Parsha number 40. We are actually on the 
the downhill slope of the yearly tour cycle. This is actually the only tour portion named after a wicked man. Interesting. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that Israel had done to the Amori. And Moab was very afraid of the people because there were so many of them. Moab was overcome with fear, dread, because of the people of Israel. So Moab said to the leaders of Midian, This horde will lick up everything around us, the way an ox licks up the grass and the field. This is kind of what Hitler said about the Jewish people in Europe, that they're kind of hoarding all the resources, right? They own all the businesses and all this stuff. It's not a new accusation. Belak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab, which they are all descendants of Lot, if you remember him. He sent messengers to Bilam, the son of Beor, at Petor, by the Euphrates River, in his native land, to tell him, Listen, a people has come out of Egypt. They spread over all the land and settled down next to me. They didn't really settle down. They were on the move, right? Therefore, please come and arar this people for me. Because they are stronger than I am. Now, what is the word arar? It's the to bind the him in to render powerless. Maybe I will be able to strike them down and drive them out of the land. For I know that whomever you bless is in fact blessed. And whomever you arar is in fact arar. Now, the leaders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the payment for divining. They came to Bilam and they spoke to him the words of Bilak, the king. And he said to them, stay here tonight, and I will bring you back whatever answer Adonai tells me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Bilam. Now this is interesting because it gives us a window into how Bilam communicates with God. It's mainly through sleep, through dreams, during the night, right? So he has kind of this mysterious connection with God, one that he cannot see him, he doesn't, you don't see each other. It's kind of distanced, isn't it? So God came to Bilam and said, Who are these men with you? Bilam said to God, Now pay close attention here. Bilak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent this message to me. The people who came up out of Egypt have spread over the land now. Now come and kava them for me. Is that what Bilak said? No, he said to arar them. Maybe I will be able to fight against them and drive them out. So God answered Bilam. Now notice what word God uses here. You are not to go with them. You are not to arar them. So in other words, God knows what the king has really asked for. He didn't ask for him to kavah them. He asked for them to arar them. But you see, Balaam's twisting the truth just a little bit already here, isn't he? God answered Balaam, you are not to go with them. You're not to arar the people. Because they, and he uses the Hebrew, ki baruch hu, they are blessed. Now, Bilam got up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak. So we know that this transpired, this conversation transpired at night, right? Bilam got up in the morning and said to the, the princes of Balak, Return to your own land, because Adonai refuses to give me permission to go with you. The princes of Moab got up, returned to Balak, and said, Bilam refuses to come with us. So Balak again sent princes, more of them, and of higher status than the first group. Then they went to Balaam and said to him, Here is what Balak the son of Zippor says. Please don't anything keep you from coming to me. I will reward you very well. And whatever you say to me, I will do. So please come and curse this people for me. That's Arar, this people for me. Balaam answered the servants of Balak, Even if Balak were to give me his whole palace filled with silver and gold, 
I cannot go beyond the word of Adonai my God to do anything great or small. Now please, verse 19 says, you too stay here tonight. Now, that's his big mistake right there, right? He should have been like, no, God already, I already had this dialogue with him. He told me not to do it, that these people are blessed. So just go on back home. But what does Bilam do? Well, let's try again. Let's, you can stay here tonight. Maybe he's changed his mind. Now, this is because in the ancient Canaanite in Near Eastern world, that's what gods do. Is they're fickle. They change, you know, the changing seasons and how many offerings you bring and all this stuff. That's Bilam's frame of reference. And he's treating the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, as if he's like one of these pagan deities. You see that? It is that true? No, our God does not change, right? So he says, you guys stay here with me tonight. Big mistake. So God came to Bilam during night, verse 20, and said to him, if the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them. But do only what I tell you. Now, wait a second. I was sitting on the couch this week reading this to the boys, and Noah so acutely observed, wait a second, why did God change his mind? Well, sometimes God doesn't change his mind. He sees that we are determined to get our way. And he says, fine, go do what you want to do, but I'm going to have my way in the end. And so sometimes he lets us exercise the free will that he's blessed us with. But I like how one commentator put it, Stacey and I were reading last night, with that comes just enough rope to hang ourselves sometimes, doesn't it? It's like, all right, go for it. I need, you to, I need you to suffer the consequences of your bad decision in order for you to truly repent. So Bilam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger flared up because he went. And the angel of Adonai stationed him on the path to bar his way. Now in the Hebrew, it actually says that he was a satan to him. He was like an adversary. Now, sometimes when we are walking in the path of Bilam, when we're behaving like Bilam and thinking like Bilam, we have the worldview of Bilam, sometimes the angel, or we could say sometimes Yeshua, looks to us like Satan. Catch that? He was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were there with him. The donkey saw the angel Adonai standing on the road, drawn sword in hand, and the donkey turned off the road into the field, and Bilam had to beat the donkey to get it back on the road. So it's interesting because in all the divining that this guy does and all the spiritual hocus pocus this guy can do he doesn't have as much spiritual insight and discernment as a donkey right that interesting he's very spiritually blind in some ways then the angel of Adonai stood on the road where it became narrow as it passed among the vineyards and had stone walls on both sides the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and pushed up against the wall crushing Bilam's foot against the wall so he beat it again the angel of Adonai moved ahead and stood in a place so tight that there was no room to turn either right or left. And again the donkey saw the angel of Adonai and lay down under Bilam, which made him so angry that he hit the, hit the donkey with a stick. But Adonai enabled the donkey to speak, and it said to Bilam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Bilam said to the donkey, It's because you, you've been making a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. I would kill you on the spot. The donkey said to Bilam, I am your donkey, right? You have ridden me all your life. Have I ever treated you like this before? No, he admitted. Then Adonai opened Bilam's eyes so that he could see the angel of Adonai standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell on his face. And the angel of Adonai said to him, Why did you hit your donkey three times like that? 
I have come out here to bar your way, to be like a Satan, an adversary, because you are rushing to oppose me. The donkey saw me and turned aside these three times, and indeed, if she hadn't turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and saved it alive. Bilam said to the angel of Adonai, I have sinned. I didn't know that you were standing on the road to block me. Now, therefore, if what I am doing displeases you, I will go back. But the angel of Adonai said to Bilam, No, go on with these men, but you are to say only what I tell you to say. So Bilam went along with the princes of Balak. Verse 36, When Balak heard that Bilam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab at the Arnon border, in the farthest reaches of the territory. And Balak said to Bilam, I sent more than once to summon you. Why didn't you come to me? Did you think I couldn't pay you enough? Bilam replied back, Here, I have come to you, but I have no power of my own to say anything. The word of God puts... Uh, the word that God puts in my mouth is what I will say. So Balaam went to, with Balak. And they arrived at Kiriat Hutzot. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep, then sent Balaam and the princes with him. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. From there, he could see a portion of the people. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here, and prepare me seven bulls and rams here. Seven rams here. Balak did as Balaam said, and Balak and Balaam offered a wild, uh, I'm sorry, off, uh, uh, stand, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering while I go off. Maybe Adonai will come and meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went off to a bare hill. God met Balaam, who said to him, I prepared the seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Adonai put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, go on back to Balak and speak to him. As I tell you. So he went back to him, and there, standing by his burnt offering, he, with all the princes of Moab, he made this mashal, this proverb, this oracle. Balak, the king of Moab, bring, brings me from Aram, from the eastern hills, saying, Come, Arar, Yaakov for me. Come, and Za'am, like speak indignantly towards Israel. How am I to... Now, the word here is ekov, which means to pierce, to, to uh, bore a hole into. How am I to do this, boring a hole or piercing those who God has not kava? How am I to za'am those who Adonai has not za'amed, to speak indignantly towards? Now, is this not what the media is doing today towards the people of Israel? Speaking indignantly towards them, right? Who has counted the dust of Yaakov or numbered the ashes of Israel? May I die as the righteous die. May my end be like theirs. And Balak said to Balaam, what, you have, what have you done to me? To kava my enemies is why I brought you. And here you have totally blessed them. He answered, mustn't I take care to say just what Adonai puts in my mouth? Balak said to him, all right, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will see only some of them, not all, but you can kava them for me from there. So we go on. He does three more oracles. And in this entire time, Bilam is using the Tetragrammaton, the holy name of God, repeatedly. Now, when you get to verse 17, Balak finally uses the name of God. It's interesting, right? So... 
In rabbinic literature, Balaam is represented as one of the seven Gentile prophets. The other six being Beor, Job, Job's four friends. In literature, in, in this literature, Balaam gradually acquired a position among the non-Jews, which was exalted as much as that as Moses among the Jews. At first being a mere interpreter of dreams, but later becoming a magician, until finally the spirit of prophecy descended upon him. So this is kind of a breakout, and I can you can take a photo of this, but this shows the four or I'm sorry, the seven, the seven um poems that he speaks over Israel and their, the different prophetic elements within them. But we're not going to get into the, that degree right now. But when we read the story of Bilam, we kind of develop this weird, conflicting feeling towards him, don't we? We're like, the man, yeah, he had some ulterior motives, but really, it kind of seemed like he was being obedient in the end. It kind of seemed like he was just going along with what God told him. Like, I kind of like the guy... But at the same time, like it seems like a redemptive story, doesn't it? At the same time, man, he did have some weird motives. He was kind of he was kind of shifty, and he beat beat his animal, right? He's spiritually blind in some ways, but in other ways, he had great illumination into the spiritual realm, didn't he? How many of you you kind of developed that weird conflict with him? I know I did. Like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I don't know. I can't tell. Well, then we get to number thirty-one, and it gets really clear, doesn't it? Very clear. Go with me to number 31 real fast. And this is um, stealing thunder from a couple weeks from now, in the Torah portion a couple weeks from now. But it, we, we carry this like dilemma with us into the next week's Torah portions and this character, Bilam. We don't really know what to do with him or how he fits in. But if you look at verse 13, actually verse 16, he says, these are the women... Who, because of Bilam's advice, caused the people of Israel to rebel and breaking faith with Adonai in the Peor incident, so that the plague broke out amongst Adonai's community. So wait a second. There's a lot going on here. So this guy Bilam apparently infiltrates the camp of Israel. And then what does he do? He convinces women to seduce the Israeli men. And commit gross and universal acts of sexual immorality. And brings a plague on Israel. So does that clear it up a little bit with Bilam and his status in our minds that he's a good guy or if he's a bad guy? It does for me. I'm like, I look at that and I'm like, oh man, this guy is... But there's a period of confusion that I kind of go through at first when I read this. Because we wouldn't read this for another three or four weeks. So I, I hold this... This kind of this weird place for Bilam in my mind where like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I don't know. It's convoluted. So it's not clear to me. Well, here's a really good way we can kind of decipher this. But before I jump into this, Michael, I'm gonna, I ask you to come up and um, help me write some things up here on the board. Um, I wanted to remember this angel that's talking to Bilam. And this angel says a number of things to Bilam. Well, this is the same angel that speaks to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And the same angel of Adonai gives Abraham some promises. So I want you to write these over here on the left under the angel of Hashem to Abraham. He says, your descendants will be great. Your descendants, so the key is just writing really big. Really big. So we can see, your descendants will be great. Now let's juxtapose what that angel said 
with what Bilam says over the people of Israel. Your descendants will be great. Yeah, nice and big. We got, we got room. We're going to do three of these. Will be great. So, Bilam, if you remember in that first oracle, so let's go over to the next column now, Michael. He says, who can count these people? This is the first thing he says about Israel. Who can count these people? And that's in Numbers 23.10, I believe it is. Who can count these people? All right? So draw a line under those two things that you just wrote. Let's, let's like box it in a little bit when you're done writing people. Good. Now draw a line under all of that. There you go. Now we're going to do a different category. Now the angel says a second thing to Abraham about his descendants. That they will conquer their enemies. They will conquer their enemies. And it's C-O-N-Q-U-E-R. Their enemies. Okay, now look at Numbers 23, 24. Numbers 23, 24. It says that they devour their prey like a lion. That Israel devours their prey like a lion. They devour... D-E-V. There you go. Devour their prey. P-R-E-Y. Like a lion. Let me increase the font size. There we go. Like a lion. Good. It's good. Like 22. Like a lion. All right. Cool. Draw a line under that. All right. Third thing that the angel of Adonai says to Abraham. That... God will bless those who bless the people of Israel. God will bless those who bless you. God will bless those who bless you. God will bless those who bless you. Now look at Numbers 24.9. Numbers 24.9. He says... Blessed be all who bless you. Blessed be all who bless you. So you see what's going on here. That Bilam is just echoing, but not only echoing, but talking about the fulfillment of what this angel told Abraham hundreds of years prior. He's saying, look, it's starting to come true. The promises of God given to the people that Abraham's seed are now becoming true. And that the covenants, what, I mean, what does this mean? That the covenant promises given to Abraham will not only hold true, but they will even be acknowledged by the nations that have ill intent in the future. See that? So even they will have to come to the realization that what God told, what God spoke to Abraham about his descendants will have to be true. And he'll get this goofball mercenary prophet to admit it. That's neat. For me, anyways. Thank you. Give it up for Michael. Good, good writer. <laughs> now, why didn't Balak? You know, Balak says, Hey, Balaam, I know whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. Here's something. Why didn't Balak just go, Hey, can you just curse? Can you just, can you just bless me? Can you just bless my kingdom? Right? Why didn't he do that? 
Why don't you just go, hey, I see these people are really powerful. And I know you, who you bless is blessed. Can you make me like them? Why did he do that? Because when the nations that hate Israel, when they, when they are influenced by Satan, there's like this, there's like this um, unexplicable hatred for the people of God. That they will, to their own ruin, want them to be cursed. To their own ruin, they're willing to see them get cursed. Where is America right now with that? Is that one of the top priorities? When you look at who you're going to vote for in an election, that should be one of the top things we look at. Are they someone who's going to curse Israel? Because if they're going to curse Israel, that means that we're going to get cursed. And I don't want that for our nation. Are they going to bless Israel? Because if they bless Israel, we're going to be blessed. And I want that for our nation. So put that on your list of things to think about, pray about when you, the next, next elections that come up. We're going to move on. I want to do kind of a comparative analysis between this guy, Balak, and, and Moshe. You know, these two guys are operating kind of independently of each other. And we don't know. I mean, Moses doesn't know that this guy is up there cursing the people he's trying to lead into this land. Moses is down there just breaking his back for these people and trying to get them move forward, move forward, obey, trust. You can inhabit the land. Follow him. Right? What I wanted to do, and this is something I want you to take forward with you in time, in, in terms of looking at someone you should call a leader in your life. Someone you should look at. Who is this person? Is this person qualified to teach me the word of God? And, and, and look at this comparison. This is everyday, modern day stuff that's going on right now that you could use and put in your tool belt, okay? I wanna do, do a compare and contrast between Moses and, and Balaam. Number one, Moses. Does he have any incentive to lead these people? Is he getting a salary? Is he getting a 401k? What does he get out of it? A lot of heartache, right? Why am I doing this, Moses? Like, think about that. What compelled him to want to do that for 40 years? There's something. What is it? It's a calling. It's a calling, and he loves his creator. And he wants to protect and sanctify his name in the world. He knows that if I get these people to there... God's name is sanctified. God's promises are made true. And you know what? I may not go into that land with them, but they will, and he will be honored with it. Gosh, think about that kind of leadership. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about him. And getting, getting the nations around the world to know that he is indeed going to keep his promises with his people. Now, let's switch gears and talk about Balaam. Did he have those kind of motivations? No. He had monetary incentive, didn't he? He's like, yeah, I'll go. I mean, I'm going to speak what God tells me to speak. If I get something out of it, that's fine too. You know, it's icing on the cake. Let's look at, let's look at Moses now. Let's talk about his influence on and respect from the people that he's trying to lead. That he's sacrificing his life to lead. How did it go for him? It's kind of hit or miss, isn't it? 
How many times in the book of Numbers do they grumble against Moses? Have you brought us out here to die? Right? But what about Balaam? How influential is he? How much respect does he get? Apparently quite a bit. He's able to bring a plague on the people because of he leads them into sexual sin. And you don't hear of any grumbling against Balaam. Do you? But how much more grumbling do you hear against Moshe? Moses has a vested interest in the success and the obedience of the people. And he's like down in the thick of it, isn't he? He's like there, like boots on the ground leading these people. Waking up in the morning, splashing water on his face, eating some manna. And he's like, okay, where are we going today, Lord? Where do you want me to take these people today? Right? Where's, where's Balaam? He's not even in the equation. He's like off on the periphery. He's like doing his own thing. Right? Waiting for the next client to show up with some money and a, and a check, right? He has no vested interest in these people being successful in, in terms of making it to their, their goal. And I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Some of the sharpest criticisms we receive here, what we do at DMF, come from people who are, have very little vested interest in what we do. Who are on the periphery. And they can, they can shoot some fiery arrows out of their mouth. And this is what I do. I'm like, don't, you know, I block, I block them for you. But, man, Moses was there in the thick, day in and day out. What about Moses? He continually encourages righteousness and obedience, doesn't he? There's never a day where Moses is like, hey guys, just take a day off. Just stop with this Torah stuff. Or let's, let's ease our way into it, maybe. No, what does he say? Pursue righteousness. I, I give you life and death. Choose life, right? But what does Bilam encourage? He encourages spiritual apathy. He encourages like a prosperity doctrine. Right? See the fruit. Seize it. Eat it. That kind of stuff, right? He encourages disobedience. Let's go back to Moses. Moses sees so much into the spiritual realm and has so much discernment into God's will that he actually talks to God where and how? Face to face. But look at Bilam. Does he talk to God face to face? No, in the cover of night, right? As he's sleeping, probably, in these dreams. What about Moses? He seeks seclusion and privacy during interactions with God. How many times do people grumble against Moses and he goes to the tent of meeting and he goes inside or he lays down in front of it and falls on his face? He's like, God, I just need you to help me in this situation. I just need your advice. But what does Bilam look for? He goes out in this high mountain, the, the high places of Baal, right? And he's standing there in the, in the company of all these princes and he loves his attention. Oh, like hear my oracle, right? He feeds off of that attention. What did Yeshua do? Many times Yeshua during his ministry goes into a place of isolation. He leaves the people. Let's go back to Moses. Moses follows the protocol when it comes to accessing God's presence. Does Bilam do that? Bilam's like, 
goes up to the places of Baal and offers on altars sacrifices to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that part of the protocol? And he conjures up like these spells. He uses the name of God flippantly, even though he doesn't possess the character of it. Right? He, he doesn't follow the protocol. He uses these incantations and, and things like this. What about Moses? He, he recognizes God's unchanging nature, doesn't he? And this is the big one. Moses is like, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not going to change. He's not like other gods in this area. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? What is Balaam? Balaam views God like he's just another Canaanite deity and can change from day to day. Do we view him that way? You know, sometimes Stacey and I were talking, it was the last night we were talking about how sometimes people pray and they come to me and they're like, I'm just praying for an open door in this situation, you know? And they're like walking through the door and they're like, boom, you know, oh, look, the door's open. That means I, I, God wants me to walk through that door, right? Or sometimes they're a little bit more forceful, like, kick the door in. Oh, look, the door, just, I've been praying for this open door, it's there, I should go into it, right? That's dangerous. Don't do that. That can lead you to some, some bad places. A long, long journey through the wilderness. So here is kind of my takeaway from this week's Torah portion. That I want you to, I'm, I'm hoping this is like 1 Corinthians 10 kind of stuff. That you can take this and apply it to your lives like this afternoon. <laughs> Number one, there is a constant unseen struggle between the people of God and the spiritual realm that we don't see. Ephesians 6.12 says what? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers in the unseen realm, right? That's an important principle to take with you. That your greatest enemy is probably the one you don't see and you never will see. Another principle I want you to take out of this week's Torah portion. That using God's name as a source of divination or incantation is dangerous. Don't do it. Especially if you lack his character. Thirdly, doing the work of God exclusively for money is unjust and it's sinful. Now, is there room for people to do the work of God for money? To get paid to do the work of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Many of my friends and, and colleagues and, and um, mentors in my life, they get paid to do what they do. There's room for that. One of my greatest heroes, though, in the faith is Rabbi Shaul, Paul. You know that he made tents to support his ministry? Why? Because Paul knew, him going into all these synagogues in Asia Minor, and the propensity for these people to falsely accuse me of doing this just for the money is really high. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be above reproach, and I'm going to pay for my own ministry. So that they can't even accuse me of coming near that. That's, the re that's my motivation. And he, he talks about that. He brags about that. that he's, he's doing that. Let's go to 2 Peter 2.15. We're going to unpack some of these other ones real quick. 2 Peter 2.15. Did you know that the writers of the New Testament mention our man Bilam numerous times? 2 Peter 2.15. 2 Peter. It's way back in the back. Almost to the book of Revelation. It's written by, um, i trying to remember, oh, Peter. Uh, he says, uh, I'm trying to think where I want to jump in here. I guess verse 15. 2 Peter 2.15. 2 
He says, these people have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Bilam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of doing harm, but was rebuked for his son, for his sin by a dumb beast of burden who spoke out with a human voice and restrained the prophet's insanity. These people, they're like waterless springs. They're like mists driven by a gust of wind. For them has been reserved the blackest darkness, mouthing grandiosities of nothingness. They play on the desires of our old nature in order to seduce with debaucheries people who have just begun to escape from those whose way of life is wrong. In other words, a new believer, a new convert to the faith, and this guy comes along and is like, let me share with you some grandiosities. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this charismatic oration that's full of nothing. That has no application in your life whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, here's the bill for it. Stay away from those people. And guys, I've had people come to me and give me a business card. And on the business card says, Prophet. It says their name, Prophet, their phone number. Did they spell it P-R-O-F-I-T? <laughs> yeah. I have real, real hesitation as to someone who puts the, the title prophet on a business card. That could be wrong. It's to be corrected. But, man, life of a prophet is a hard one. Cool. Like saw it in half kind of stuff. I don't want that. So, let's go to Jude 1, verse 11. Jude is just like hopping a skip over to the right a couple books over. Jude 1. Jude is one of those books you can read in a, you know, 10 minutes and you feel good because you read a whole book of the Bible and you can brag about it. I don't do that though. Woe to them in that they have walked the road of Cain. They have given themselves over for money to the error of Bilam. They have been destroyed in the rebellion of Korah. These men are like filthy spots at your festive gatherings that were meant to foster love. They share your meals without a qualm while caring only for themselves. They are like waterless clouds carried along by the wind, trees without fruit, even in autumn, and doubly dead because they have been uprooted. Savage sea waves heaving forth their shameful deeds like foam. Wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Yikes. Last one, Revelation 2.14. Now Yeshua is talking in the book of Revelation. And he says this to the ecclesia, the church, the community in Pergamum. He says, here is the message from the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you are living, there, there where the adversary's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name. You did not deny trusting me, even at the time when my faithful witness, Antipas, was put to death in your town, there where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have some people who hold to the teaching of Bilam, who taught Bilak to set a trap for the people of Israel. 
so that they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. Likewise, you have two people who hold to the teaching, teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn from these sins, otherwise I will come to you very soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here is kind of the summary of those three verses from the New Testament. That anyone who is using the word of God or the oracles of God for personal monetary gain, stay away from them. Now someone who is using their gifts and their abilities to teach, to to evangelize, to to build and exhort the, the local body, and, and, and they get compensated for their time in doing so, there is room for that in the text to be able to do that. But someone who is like, they are, they are lusting after money, and they will, they will sell DVDs, they will sell subscriptions to things. I mean, man, it's, it's, it's all out there. They will, they will even put on like prayer shawls and, and do little jigs for you if it means you sign up for something or like pay a subscription for something. Right? They're not above using the things of the Jewish faith, things of scripture, if it means they increase the size of their bank account. Be discerning. Just like I was confused over Bilam. Who is this man? Is he good? Is he bad? Should I trust him? Should I not? You might have to walk through that time of confusion as well when it comes to some of these people. Are they good? Are they bad? What are their motives? They seem really nice. They, they have good graphic arts. You know, I, I, what, are they, what, are their, what is their deal? Well, guys, here's what you do. Hold them at arm's length. Pray for discernment and judge their fruit. And I always say, before you put a man on a pedestal as a teacher in your life, watch how he talks to his wife, which it's hard to do if you only see him on the internet. Watch how he interacts with us and disciplines his children. If you can't do those two things, and you're lacking a lot of crucial information and discernment. Those are two biggies, right? Lastly, the largest threat, this is the, the, the biggest takeaway from this week's Torah portion for me anyways. The largest threat to the body of Messiah in Israel is going to be an internal one. Typically caused by our hunger for prophecy. Our own gullibility and decreased discernment. Discernment, discernment, discernment. You've got to have it. There's so much crazy stuff on the internet. And Yeshua says, you will know them by their what? The fruit. All right. We're going to go down to a time of Q&A. And uh, you guys ask me questions. I might not know the answer. More than likely won't. But if you have any comments about this week's Torah portion, this is your time. You're thinking. Yeah, he must have been. Yeah, it must have been. I don't know. Where did that come from? Why did that happen? I don't know. Yeah, he didn't seem too perplexed over that, did he? That this donkey was talking to him. Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism there. Stacey and I were reading a commentary by Ardell Brody. It talks about a lot of symbolism there um, that I can share with you later if you'd like. Um, there is, yeah. Nothing in Scripture and the Torah is without, you know, purpose and meaning. And so, yeah, a lot of it is prophetic. And if I were to teach this again, like, next week, I would go on the Internet and I would find all kinds of news stories and headlines about the nations surrounding Israel, cursing Israel, and show you all how that's still going on today. And it's very prophetic. It'll happen even more as time goes on. So the United States of America was one of the biggest sources of restraint when it comes to cursing Israel. And I don't know that we're there. I don't know that we're there as a source of restraint right now. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. Any other questions or comments? Anything? Yeah, let's go. Yeah, I'm going to use a really unintelligent animal, stubborn animal. Hmm. Any other questions or comments? Good comments so far. There's no questions. That's good. Oh, maybe there was a question. Yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yep, that, so we, we take one of his oracles and we use it in our siddur. We use it in our liturgy in Montobu. Yep, written by Balaam. <laughs> How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, the dwelling places of Israel. 